If you have your Bibles this morning, we'll be in 1 Peter, looking at chapter 5, the first four verses of chapter 5 this week, continuing our series going through the book of 1 Peter. Uh, We're nearing the end. We're in the final chapter, the beginning of the last chapter here, and we'll be finishing out this series before Christmas, our Advent season. But we'll be in 1 Peter chapter 5, looking at the first four verses this morning. should be on the screens behind me if you haven't found it yet. It says this, So I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Uh, If you played team sports growing up, you probably recognized pretty quickly, like I did, that your coach can't help out every individual all the time in order to help them improve. Sometimes he has to address one person to correct and coach them specifically. But the difference between someone who's getting better under coaching, if you were in one of those sports, you probably figured out, and the one who isn't getting better under that coaching is that the kids who are getting better, the kids who are learning, the kids who are improving are the ones who listen even when he's coaching someone else. And then they apply what he said to them to themselves. I played a lot of basketball growing up, and I had to learn to do this pretty quickly because even though it was a small town, even though there was a small team, uh, I was not the best player on the team. I was not the one who got the primary focus of my coach all the time. They decided it was better for them to try to make the good players better than to make the bad players not quite as bad. So I didn't get that much direct coaching on my team. But I was turnover prone. So whenever the, the coach would talk to the point guard about how he should see the floor, how he should operate the offense, how he should protect the ball, I knew I needed to listen intently in those instances specifically because what he says to them in their role is actually true for everyone in whatever role they're in. And as someone who wanted to someday touch the ball on offense, I knew that paying attention to what the coach said to that person was going to help me eventually as well. Today's verses, today's sermon, uh, if you notice, it might feel like a similar dynamic for you. In a lot of ways, God isn't speaking and giving direction to you specifically because you're just a Christian or a church member. He's talking to church leaders here more specifically. And even the fact that this is being preached to you, I think it can make it feel like it's one more step removed. It would be like if after the coach told the point guard something, the point guard then turned and told everyone else, okay, everybody, this is what point guards are supposed to do. When you just heard the coach tell him, and now he's telling you who isn't the point guard, it would feel out of place. It might feel at times this morning like this sermon, this text isn't for you. It might feel like you can just tune out. And you might even wonder at some points, man, I had a whole extra hour of my life today, and I spent it here listening to a sermon for someone else. I hope that that's not how you leave whenever you leave today. Because even in this sermon, which is primarily directed at church leaders rather than church members, I think there's something for you to understand as a church member here. That's not what a good team member does, just ignoring whatever the coach says to someone else. You listen, you pay attention. 
both for if and when you one day are the point guard, the team captain, and also because good team members know what his job as the captain is, and they try to make that job easier. A captain, a point guard on a team, a pastor, a church leader, is set up for success whenever the team understands everyone's roles and how it all works and fits together. So even in today's verses, which are addressed primarily to church leaders, to pastors, I think you can know something from this by knowing what you should be hoping for and trying to encourage in your pastor. I think you can learn something in this because even as you see your pastor fail, you're reminded of the true shepherd who does not fail, who will not fail, who is the good shepherd. In all the ways that I fail, in all the ways that I mess up, in all the ways that I am imperfect, he is perfect in every one of those. And I hope that even as you understand how I am supposed to be and operate as your pastor, that you're reminded, you're pointed toward the one who is the true and good shepherd. So in today's verses, we're going to see three functions of biblical elders. We'll see three functions of biblical elders in our text today. And the first function of biblical elders that we see in our text is that elders shepherd their people. That's what they do. Elders shepherd their people. Look at the the first two verses. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. So the, the specific group of people that Peter's writing to here, he refers to as elders. He uses the word uh, presbyteros, uh, which you might hear and understand that's where Presbyterians get their name. Presbyteros, Presbyterians. So it's very similar. Among other differences between a Baptist and a Presbyterian, like infant baptism, there, there are other differences in the ways that we understand how the church should be organized. So if you have ever been to a Presbyterian church, they probably called what we call a pastor their elders, teaching elders, ruling elders. They often call their church leaders elders in one way or another. And I say all that, I know I usually try to stay away from the Greek whenever I'm preaching uh, because I am not very good at Greek, and I'm going to guess you're probably worse than I am. But I highlight it here specifically because I think this word matters here. This specific Greek word matters here. In our Baptistic understanding of church leadership, we would say that when the Bible uses the word for elder, for overseer, for bishop, it's talking about the same thing. It's talking about the same office. And because that office, that group of people, is so often tied to the functions of shepherding or pastoring, a synonym, another word for shepherding, just like in this text, we in our churches, in 2023 Southern Baptist churches, we tend to call the guys that Peter is referring to here pastors. We don't usually call them elders, but we call them pastors. So even though we read the text as elders, that's how it's translated because that's a more literal translation, Uh, which if you're not in church, you might just assume and hear older person whenever you hear that. And even though it does talk about younger people later in verse 5, I think Peter is giving commands specifically to who we would understand as pastors in these verses. So you're going to hear me use the terms elder and pastor interchangeably because I think they're two words that mean the same thing biblically. But the Greek matters because knowing it helps us know who Peter is talking about. He's not talking primarily about older people, elders. He's talking about pastors, elders, the people who oversee the church, as we'll see in a second. 
But I think the Greek also matters here because of the number. So I exhort the elders, plural, more than one, among you as a singular fellow elder, he says. And if you start paying attention in the New Testament, every time the Bible addresses elders, pastors, it always does it in the plural. It's always assuming that it's talking to multiple elders unless it's talking about a generic, an elder must be this kind of person. It does this even when it's talking to or about a specific local church. He says, in this church, I'm talking to the elders, plural, similar to here, the elders among you. And I don't want to spend a ton of time on this today, but I want to point out that the Bible assumes that every church has multiple pastors. It doesn't specify whether they're all paid or unpaid, or whether they're first among equals, whether there's one who's the leader or not, who preaches every week or not, but it always assumes that there is more than one, that every church will and should have multiple pastors, multiple elders in a leadership position. But if you're paying attention here at Pleasant Grove, I think we only have the one, right? Like, I'm certainly the only one up here right now preaching, right? So then what's, what's the deal with that? How can that be the case? Well, if I'm being honest, uh, I think this is something specific that I think we need to think about as a church. This is something specific that we need to look at as a church at some point. I think this is an area where we as a church may not be contradicting Scripture, but I don't think we're being fully biblical here. I think we're not fulfilling the the fullness of what the Bible is talking about here and how we're organized. And no, that doesn't mean that I'm making a motion at our next members meeting, that we rewrite our constitution, that we go to a, a multiple pastor model. Because even if you all agreed with me, and I'm assuming that a lot of you don't, we're not ready for that yet. Uh, but we need to always be evaluating who we are. We need to always be evaluating what we do in light of what Scripture says. And I think this is an area where if we look into it a little bit more, we'll see that we are coming up a little bit short. In a perfect world, I think all the authority and oversight that is currently wrapped up in my singular person as your singular pastor should be, would be better off distributed among a group of pastors, a plurality of multiple pastors who together come together to exercise the pastoral office, to lead and oversee this church. Those other guys, they, they could be paid or unpaid. They could be formally trained, having gone to seminary, or they could be practically trained within the church. They could be hired to come in and do that, or they could just be elevated from within the church. But rather than having everything that a pastor is and does be concentrated on just the one guy, me, I think it's more biblical to have that same function split among multiple men and thus, I think, fulfill the plural elders here in this verse and elsewhere. And let me point out, if you hear that and think, that means that guy's going to have way more power. That means he's going to be in charge of way more. That means he's going to be making all the decisions instead of us making all the decisions. Let me point out that, if anything, I think I would have less power in this instance, less authority than I did before. Because now, everything you see that a pastor does in Scripture, you're looking at him. I'm the one who has to do that. I'm the one who makes those decisions. I'm the one who exercises all that oversight. That's a lot that I, as a singular person, make the decisions on. A whole lot. I, as a singular person, 
have a whole lot to do with whether this church makes good decisions or bad decisions. Whereas if there were multiple of me, now there's three guys who make those decisions. Now there's five guys who make those decisions. Now instead of me having all that in myself, now I'm one vote out of three, out of five, out of seven, out of whatever, to be able to make those decisions. I think that dilutes my current power and authority. It doesn't concentrate it. But that's who Peter is talking to here. He's talking to elders, the the church leaders or pastors, who he assumes is a group of people in a specific church who have been appointed by the church to that role and are biblically qualified to fulfill it. But in the flow of his letter, the reason he now starts talking to elders, to church leaders specifically, is because he just said at the end of chapter 4 that it is time for judgment to begin in the household of God. And anything that begins in the household of God typically starts with the household of God's leadership before it reaches the average church member. He's saying the the persecution that the church is going to endure, that probably was going to start with the pastors before it got to everyone else. So they needed to be given instructions because they're the first ones going through the wall. And biblically, particularly in the area of judgment, God tends to begin with leaders before he gets to the followers. The prophets, they railed against the rulers of Jerusalem more than they did the people of Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 9, an executioner is sent out to kill the people who are participating in idolatry. And he goes throughout all the city to kill the idolaters. And God tells him in verse 6 to begin in the sanctuary. Start with the priests. Start with the leaders before you go to everyone else. So in the area of specifically judgment, I think it begins with the leaders before it gets everywhere else. So Peter's addressing the elders because they need to hear it as the first ones to experience these things. They need to hear it as those who lead the church. But he's doing these things as they're equal. He's exhorting them as a fellow elder. He's witnessed Christ's sufferings, Christ our leader, and he is with us in looking forward to the glory that is to be revealed. Okay, so Peter's an apostle, so you would think that he's saying, I'm saying this as someone who's above you, who's better than you, but instead he's letting us know that he is with us in this. That the same commands that he's giving to these elders, he's putting on himself in this instance. He has the same commands on him that he's giving to them, to me. And his charge to pastors is to shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's a charge that he, Peter, received from Jesus himself after he was resurrected. In John 21, verse 16, he said to him a second time, he, Jesus, said to him, Peter, a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. Literally, he said, shepherd my sheep. Sheep my sheep. Jesus told him to shepherd his flock, to tend to his, Jesus' flock. Pastors, by their nature, even by the name, we're shepherds. Okay, so what does that make you? Sheep. That's a common metaphor that Jesus uses for his people, his followers. The shepherd leaves the 99 to get the one. That he, Jesus, is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That we all, like sheep, have gone astray. He is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep of his hand. You hear this idea over and over and over throughout Scripture. So the pastor, the elder, in what he does, 
he does as a shepherd before he does it as anything else. Okay, I am not fundamentally the CEO of a nonprofit organization. Okay, the IRS sees me that way. That's my tax designation. I am not the founder or an entrepreneur who's running a startup. I'm not, first of all, a manager or a scholar or a counselor or a teacher. I am those things. I'm not those things primarily. What I am primarily is a shepherd over your souls. Someone who's been tasked with the care of these sheep, of this flock. That's who I'm here to tend to. I'm here to tend to this flock, the people that I am among. Which tells us, I think, two things. That you are the people I'm supposed to shepherd, and that I am supposed to be among you. I don't get to shepherd other people. Okay, you are my flock. This is the church that I'm supposed to shepherd. I'm not supposed to shepherd who I wish that you were, but who you actually are. I, as your pastor, am not allowed to dream about pastoring people with more money. I'm not allowed to dream about pastoring people with fewer problems, about more people or less people. I'm supposed to shepherd you, this flock, as you are, in whatever state you may be, as it really is, this church. That's who I'm supposed to shepherd. And I'm supposed to do that from among you. I don't do it above you. I don't do it away from you. I have to be with you, around you. So if I were to helicopter in and preach every week, if all I did was show up 1130 on a Sunday morning, preach, even if it were just incredible, even if it were like a hundred times better than whatever it is that you guys get every week, and then leave, I'm not doing my job. If all you ever heard of me was that I was in my office, if all you ever saw of me was up on this stage, then I don't think I'm pastoring you from among you in that instance. If I never spoke to anyone, if, if I never had you into my home, if I never invited you to lunch or coffee, then how can I be said to shepherd the people that I am among? I may be theoretically shepherding someone, but I can't be doing that from among you. I am tasked to shepherd you, and I have to shepherd you from among you. What elders do is they shepherd their people. But elders also exercise oversight. That's the second function of biblical elders. Elders exercise oversight. Look at the rest of verse 2 and verse 3. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So inherent to the task of pastoring, of shepherding, is oversight. That's why overseer is another common word that's used in Scripture to talk about this pastoral office. So you should think of your pastor in some sense as your overseer, as your superintendent. Okay, closely tied with these ideas is the idea of vision, that, that he sees what is and he also sees what should be, and he works with you to make what should be out of what is. And this has to be an active process. 
I'm not just supposed to oversee, but I'm supposed to exercise my oversight. So I'm not allowed to be passive and also be your overseer. I'm not allowed to lead you from the back. I'm not allowed to just do whatever you tell me to do, whatever you would prefer that I do, because I don't think I can do that and also be exercising oversight over you. And if I could make a confession to you this morning, uh, exercising oversight in this sense is my least favorite thing about what I do as your pastor. If you come to me with a problem, if you need prayer, if you need spiritual counsel, man, I have no problem helping you out. That's part of what I'm here for, right? To care for your souls, to tend to these sheep. If you come to me and have a biblical question, a doctrine, a text, an idea that you're struggling with, man, I like helping you out in that way. That's fun to me. That's the why I've gone to school for as many years as I did to try to be able to answer those questions. That's enjoyable to me. If you come to me and need me to preach a text, to proclaim the gospel to you through it, man, I love doing that. That's my favorite part of what I do. This right here, opening the word and explaining it to you so that you can see Christ and his gospel through it. That's what I enjoy doing beyond anything else. But taking the initiative in leading you, this church, man, that just wears me out. It is draining to me. I don't enjoy it. And you guys are pretty easy to lead. Okay, you guys aren't like crazy off the wall every time I'm putting out fires every week. You guys are like pretty low maintenance. And it's still just like a constant drain every single time I've got to do something. It's like Sisyphus with a stone pushing it up the hill. And it just feels like it never really stops. I don't enjoy it. I don't think I'm particularly gifted in it. I don't think I'm really that good at it. Okay, you can ask my wife if she wants my input sometimes. There are certain things that I need to be the one to make the decision on. But she's the one who really has to have the decision made on whatever it is. So she comes to me and she has this list of several questions. And all these things, I have to hear what the question is and make a decision on. And that will work for the first, like four that she has on this list. And after that, it's just, I don't care. Anything. We'll go on this trip to whatever place you want to go to. We'll go on whatever time you want to leave. We'll go eat wherever it is that you want to go. Because I just, it just drains me to have to do those kind of things. I just hit a wall. I've got no will left to make these calls. I no longer care. My only goal in that instance is to just stop having to be so hands-on in this. It's just to stop having to make the decisions of whatever this is. I don't like exercising oversight. But that's not how I'm supposed to exercise oversight in the church. I'm not allowed to hit a wall. I'm not allowed to get tired of it. I'm not allowed to say, I don't want to do this anymore. I can't do it under compulsion. I have to do it willingly. I can't do it just because I have to. I can't do it just because no one else will or no one else can. I'm supposed to do it willingly, Peter says. On some level, I have to just want to take the initiative to be an active leader here, not a passive participant. And that kind of active desire is usually inherent to the office of pastor. 
In fact, it's a qualification of being an elder, of being a pastor from 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of elder, of overseer, he desires a noble task. And then Paul lays out this long list of what kind of person the pastor is supposed to be. It's all character things rather than aptitude things or skill things. But desiring the task, aspiring to the office of pastor, that's where everything begins. You have to want to do this. You have to want to be this. So I'm not allowed for my natural laziness, for my natural passivity, to keep me from exercising oversight because I have to do this and I have to do it willingly. Even more than that, Peter says I have to do it eagerly. And it's interesting here that Peter plays eagerness off shameful gain, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly. I mean, those two things don't really seem like opposites in the same way as not under compulsion, but willingly. You'd expect for shameless gain to be what he says there. You expect no gain to be what he says there, not eagerly. But I think the connection between those two things, shameful gain and eagerly, is about motive. It's about why you are doing what you're doing. See, you can't pastor as a route to the kind of life you want. You can't pastor as a, a route to get rich because Christians are easy to steal from, because you, you think it might help you become mayor, might help you sell more cars or something. You should pastor simply because of what pastoring is. You have to aspire to this office just because you want to serve the Lord by shepherding his flock. Okay, that's what eagerness looks like. It needs no other reason to do what it's trying to do. It just does it because now it has the opportunity to do it, the chance to do it. Pastors, we should pastor for no other reason than because we want to and because God has called us to do it. So now, given the opportunity, we jump at it. We take that chance. We lean into that opportunity. But this can't be our chance to be in charge or to get the credit or just to, to call the shots because of what verse 3 says. Not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. The pastor's leadership cannot become a dictatorship. Okay, I can't be here as your pastor so that I get what I want all the time. You're not here to serve me. You're not here to inflate my ego. You're not here to do whatever I want all the time. It's not my place to force you or punish you to get you to agree with me. I'm supposed to lead, not command. I'm supposed to persuade, not dictate. I convince you. I don't overrule you. I am not here as your pastor to domineer over you, but to be an example to you. Leadership elsewhere, that may look like domination. In other places, Jesus acknowledged that. Matthew chapter 20, verse 25, he said, But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. You see, in other places, the leaders and rulers, they may lord it over their followers. They may exercise authority over them rather than oversight over them. But not in the church. 
Whoever should be first among you should be servant of all, should be last of all. I, as your pastor, am to lead, but I lead as an example in my service. Now, I am still to lead. This doesn't then mean that because I can't domineer, that that means I'm the one who caves every time. That whatever you want always wins over whatever I want, because that's the only way to make sure that I'm not a dictator. It's not like the tables somehow get turned, and because I can't be a dictator, now I have to be your errand boy. But it does mean that who I am, my example, that that is what allows me the opportunity to lead those who are in my care rather than just my position as your pastor. I am not here primarily to do the job of being your pastor. I am here primarily to be the man who is your pastor. And there's a subtle but important distinction there. Hirelings, they do the job. You can hire someone to do my job description. You could find somebody to do it better than I can. But to be the man who is your pastor, to be the shepherd of this church, it's a horse of a different color. It's a whole new thing. It's not focused on tasks. It's not focused on priorities. It's not focused on jobs, job descriptions. It's focused on loving you and shepherding you in whatever act that needs to look like, in whatever form that needs to take. I lead you by being an example to you. And that's what pastoral oversight looks like when it's exercised. It's willing. It wants to oversee your soul for your benefit and the glory of God. It's eager to do so. Just because that's why I've been put on this earth. Not as the means to some other end. It's enacted much more by the example I set for you rather than how many directives I give to you. The elder should exercise oversight, and he should do so in this way. But finally, the third function of a biblical elder in this passage, elders are faithful stewards. Elders are faithful stewards. Look at verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, I am a shepherd of this flock, but I am an under-shepherd. I shepherd under the authority, under the leadership of another shepherd, of the chief shepherd, of the good shepherd. Earlier in this passage, back in verse 2, it told elders to shepherd the flock, but whose flock did it say it is? Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. I am your pastor, but you're not my church. You're Christ's church. You belong to him. He is the head of the church, which is his body. You were bought with his blood. You weren't bought with mine. He said that he will build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Not my church. I wasn't crucified for you. I didn't live a perfect life to save you from your sin. You are not a bride who is being prepared to be presented as pleasing and perfect and holy before me, your groom, but before Christ, your groom. I am not waiting at the end of your altar, but he is the one who loved you and gave himself for you, the one who died for your sins and in your place, the one who has redeemed you out of the miry clay and set your feet up upon the rock. That's who you belong to now that you've repented of your sins 
Now that you've believed in him and his gospel work to save you. Now that you've entered into his church and become part of his people. You're his church. You're not mine. You're Christ's church. You don't exist to make Nathan Miller look good. You don't exist to make Nathan Miller feel good. You don't exist to make a group of elders be highly respected among their peers. You are not here so that I will feel better about myself or so that I have an audience each week to go up and just talk, to say something. Because I tried open mic night and it wouldn't work anymore. But these people don't just get up and leave. They don't boo. You're here as Christ's church. And I have to actively remember that, that you are his church and you're here for him. You're not here for me. And Peter says that again, not primarily for your benefit, but for mine as your pastor, as your elder. You don't belong to me. So I think that has to affect how I exercise my oversight as your pastor. You see, it's not about me getting all my goals met. It's not about me making sure that all of my preferences are the ones that are taken into account whenever we make any decisions. My leadership over you has to, be focusing on, has to be focused on glorifying God in this church and in your lives. Because that's why we exist as a church, right? We exist to glorify God and enjoy him forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we exist as a church. You glorify him, not me. You make disciples of him, not me. And that has to be my focus as your pastor. And it has to affect how I function as your pastor. Not just my goals, not just what I'm aiming to do in my leadership over you. It has to also affect the method that I use as I do so. Mark Dever, a pastor I really respect, who wrote a book called Discipling, that your deacons and I just finished reading together a month ago. At the end of that book, he said this, One way to view my whole ministry is getting my church ready for the next pastor. Now, I hope to be your pastor as long as you'll have me, as long as I'm still effective. I would love to retire here, to pass this pulpit and this church on to someone else one day after a long and fruitful ministry here. I can't control the future, but I pray that God grants that grace to me and to us. But part of my job is to get you ready for the next guy is to get you ready for whoever comes after me. I absolutely hope to pastor you in such a way that you are ready for the next guy, whoever he is, whenever he comes. It doesn't matter how good or bad a pastor I am or how fruitful God may make our ministry here together because I am not immortal. I am not going to work here for forever. And because you are Christ's church, not mine. You, his church, you will keep going even when I'm not here anymore. So it's my job even right now today to prepare you for that day while I'm still here. You'll hear me say my shorthand for this idea all the time. If I get hit by a bus, this is what I want to happen. If I get hit by a bus, you guys have got to keep doing this. I don't spend like my spare time dodging buses. I'm not really in a situation where getting hit by a bus is something that's likely to happen. But people run red lights all the time. I'm not in control of that. I'm not ultimately in control of when my arteries get clogged to the point that my heart stops. I don't control whether cancer grows in my own brain or not. 
So I have to get you ready now for whatever comes after me, whenever that may be. And man, I want the next guy to walk in and every day find a new reason to be thankful that I was the pastor before him. I want him to, at every turn, have an example of ministry to follow, a culture of discipleship and fellowship to maintain, not to create. I don't want him to ever shake his head and wonder, man, what was that guy doing with all his time? What did he spend his time doing each week? He was here for however many years and he didn't get that done? He didn't address this issue? He didn't fix this problem? I want him to pick up the baton and seamlessly keep running the race set before this church for the glory of God and Christ to whom you belong. I am your shepherd, but I am not the chief shepherd. Neither am I the good shepherd. I'm not the end-all, be-all in this place, and I can't allow myself to think that I am. I mean, you know I'm not. You'll tell me. You'll notice. You'll see. I'm a steward. I have care and oversight of you for a time. And I'm going to keep doing this until he removes me or he appears. And in either case, I'm going to have to turn you over to the care of someone else. And if I've done well, if I've been faithful, if I've fulfilled my ministry among you, if I've shepherded this flock of God and exercised my oversight as I've been commanded, then when he appears in glory, and he will, and my life and ministry are judged, when I have to give an account of every soul that I have charge of, and I will, then if I am faithful, I'll receive the unfading crown of glory. And on that day, it's all going to be worth it. On that day, I won't have a count of the, the Fridays and Saturdays that I spent They were my days off doing church things. On that day, I won't have count of all the the hours, the sleepless nights that I've spent staring at the ceiling, thinking about you. On that day, none of that's going to matter anymore. Because the unfading crown of glory is worth anything else that you might be able to put me through. Pastoring, like parenting, is not easy if you're doing it right. It's hard. It takes effort. It never stops. It never quits. And it's not like you get breaks. They're never not your kid. I can't turn that part of me off. But that doesn't mean that I'm the victim here either. I'm no loser at the end of this. Though I do have to shepherd this flock wherever that entails. Though I do have to exercise oversight willingly, eagerly, as a constant example. Though you aren't mine, and I'm just the steward for now. The God we serve will reward his shepherds in his love for them. So what more could we ask for? What more could I ask for? Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. Thank you for all that you've done for us, Lord. Thank you for the chance to be able to to read your word with your people, to hear it preached. Thank you for the example that you've set for us in Jesus Christ, who is the good shepherd, who lays down his life for his sheep. Thank you for being that for your people, even in the ways, even in all the times, the places that your under-shepherds mess up, that we fall short. In the ways that I fail, I'm thankful that you don't. Thank you for loving these people, for saving these people and for giving me as a shepherd this flock to be able to shepherd. 
Thank you for their grace toward me, their goodness. Thank you for the heart that they have for you, that we might together glorify you and enjoy you forever by being and making disciples of Jesus Christ. I pray that you'll make that true among us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.